Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Rollins travels about 1,500 miles by phone to visit with Clay Sisson of Albany, Georgia. Clay is a name that you well know in quail circles and is a prominent researcher. I think you'll very much enjoy Dale's conversation with Clay. Let's go to Dr. Dale now. Thank you, Gary. It's, uh, as always, a pleasure to be with our listeners this month here on the uh, cusp of uh, Christmas. And I know many of us are wishing we had more quail in our stockings. And hopefully, after visiting with today's guest, uh, maybe we'll be on the path to such a uh, just such a present. Our guest today is somebody that uh, I've really grown to develop an appreciation for and uh just just love him. I love that Georgia accent. I'm talking with Clay Sisson. Now, if you've ever been involved, read any of the quail literature, you've read something that Clay's been involved in down there. And we're going to cover his uh, professional history down there about the Albany Quail Project and also his work at Tall Timbers. And I know you're going to enjoy what uh, what we have in line for you today. So welcome aboard, Clay. Good to have you on our broadcast. Well, good to be with you, Dale. Thanks for Thanks for the invitation. Why don't we start off, Clay, by give us give us your little elevator speech, your bi- biography about uh, where you came from and what you're doing today. All right, be happy to. Uh, I was born and raised in the in the great state of Georgia, uh, where I still live. Uh, got deep roots here. I'm actually sixth generation Georgian. Uh, I've lived my whole life in the state, uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, went to the University of Georgia. Uh, as an undergraduate, where I had a sort of an extended career um, as an undergraduate, I, I got uh, a little traveling itch a couple times and took a year off one time and went to Montana, spent a year in Montana and came back, went back to school, and then another time took a year off and and went to Alaska and uh, and had a great time both of those journeys. Um, and then I kind of settled down and got back to my studies and graduated from the from University of Georgia, uh, Forest and Wildlife School in 1987. And from there, went on to Auburn and got my master's degree at, at Auburn, um, actually working on a wild turkey project. And that's how I got uh, ended up at, at Tall Timbers. That turkey project was with Dr. Dan Speak in the late 80s. Uh, the project was at Tall Timbers on some of the quail plantations in the Thomasville, Tallahassee area. And that's kind of how I got to to this part of the country. Well, we'll forgive you for having to have worked with turkeys or whatever. I know they're just a super big quail, but we're proud to have you in the quail community. And I think the first time that I met you, I want to say it was about 1989 at the Quail Unlimited National Convention in Houston, Texas. And I, I met you and your, your running buddy, Dr. Bill Palmer, who we'll make reference to in a minute. And, and you know, quail... Unlimited kind of bit the dirt about 2009, but I really do miss those national conventions because that was my opportunity to catch up with some of you guys, and I always enjoyed seeing y'all. Yeah, that, they they were a lot of fun. I remember that. Well, uh, it seems like a hundred years ago, don't it, Dale? Uh, that one in Houston, and and, uh, and that was a that was a fun one. That was actually I was reminiscing about that uh, preparing for this podcast and uh, thinking back on it. That was the first time I gave a a talk, a professional wildlife talk in front of a large group like that, and I was just a kid, really. That was a lot, that's been a while back, um, right out of graduate school, and I was scared to death. Um, I remember writing that talk down on a on a yellow legal pad. I wrote word for word what I was going to say, and practiced it in front of the mirror, and practiced it in front of my wife, and all that, and then uh, and then just basically got up there and read it word for word off that legal pad. I'm sure it was terrible presentation but that was the first one i did and uh, of course done a bunch of them since then but that one still stands out because i was scared to death well i would say you've mastered your whatever fear of public speaking <laughs> you had and indeed you and uh, practice makes improvement that's what i always say 
Um, oh, yeah. Back in about 2009, there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, I started a symposium series or seminar series that I call the Distinguished Lectureship in Quail Management. And our very first guests were Clay Sisson and Bill Palmer. Now, Roby, Texas, the community building there in Roby, Texas, only held about 100 people, and we had it standing room only that cold day in January, and uh, and everybody became fans of the work that, that you guys are doing down there in the southeast. And uh, I'll, I'll tip my cap to you several times, and uh, we're just trying to, you know, they say imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Well, we're trying to imitate y'all to the degree we can, and we're going to talk and dissect what some of y'all's successes are and have been, and then maybe contrast those with those of us here on the Western Front, and uh, see if we can see if we can do better. Clay, were you were you uh, indoctrinated into quail hunting, or, or where'd you get your start relative to quail? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I didn't grow up quail hunting as a kid, um, although we we hunted and fished a lot. Um, my daddy was not a big hunter; he liked to fish, uh, but he encouraged us to, you know, to do stuff outdoors and you know how it was back then dale you and i are not that much different in age i mean we didn't have uh internet and cell phones and satellite tv and all that stuff i mean you had to make your own entertainment and most of that was spent outside this was in the 60s and 70s and uh you know we we roamed around i didn't know uh, I, I like to tell people i didn't grow up on a dirt road but three there was three houses between ours and the end of the pavement um, so I could ride my bicycle and later on even a dirt bike and be in the woods and we had guns and when, you know, from a young age and, and it was mostly small game hunting back then. We had, uh, very few deer. This would have been in the, you know, in the seventies when I was in high school, there were very few deer in North Georgia where I grew up on the outskirts of Rome. Uh, and there were no turkeys at all. We didn't have a turkey season until I was in college. Uh, so it was all small game hunting. There was a lot of squirrel hunting, rabbit, um, doves, ducks, and quail. I knew several people that were avid quail hunters in that area. Um, I just didn't happen to be one at the time. Uh, but we did a lot of other kind of hunting and a lot of fishing. My my family were mill people, as was common during that era. After World War II, both of my granddaddies were mill workers, one in the textile mill and one in the paper mill. And that's what my daddy did was work worked in the paper mill also. But the culture was very much still, you know, a hunting culture. The guys I went to high school with, uh, everybody hunted and fished. And, you know, if you, back then, if somebody killed a deer, it was like they were Daniel Boone or David Crockett or something. It was a pretty big deal. Um, I really got into um, quail hunting when I came to uh, graduate, I went to graduate school to work on a turkey project because I'd become infatuated with turkeys. Uh, I, I went turkey hunting the first day of the first spring gobbler season that Georgia had in 1983 and called up a big gobbler that scared me to death. He looked, looked like he was big as an ostrich. You know, I'd never seen one up close like that in the woods. And he walked up on me and I missed him and watched him fly off. And that, and I was hooked ever since and still am. But, uh, so I went to graduate school to study turkeys, and just it was my great uh, luck that uh, that turkey project was being done at Tall Timbers, and that exposed me to the to the quail hunting culture, and uh, fell in love with it, and and basically never left. But I had one interesting story I'd tell when I was a kid, uh, back in those days when we used to ride our bicycles to the end of the pavement and go hunting and. We'd just take a shotgun, one of us, and a twenty-two rifle, the other, and, and you hunting whatever you came across. You know, you, you've been there, you know, you know whether it was a rabbit or a squirrel or, or whatever. And the first wild quail I ever saw shot and killed was from my buddy, Nicky Norris, who I went to, went through school with. We just happened to walk into a covey of quail one day on one of our uh, adventures, and he threw, he had a Marlin 22 semi-automatic rifle, and he threw up and shot at that covey of birds on the wing and killed a cock bird with a headshot, which was pure luck. But, but still, that, and we were just kids, and that was that was the first wild quail I ever saw killed was in Floyd County, Georgia, back in the 70s. You cannot believe what a similar niche and convergent 
pathway that uh, me and Coon Dog Carey were living out here on the Hunts Meridian out here in southwestern Oklahoma because he's the only guy that I ever saw shoot a bird, shoot a Bob White out there with the twenty two. So now I know there's at least two of them out there. Well, I want to pick up your career path. Uh, as far as I know, you, you kind of had two parts to your career, and I'm not I'm talking about outside of turkeys. Uh, I first learned of you there at the Auburn with the Albany Quail Project, and I guess we better get this straight. Out here in West Texas, we say Albany, but y'all don't pronounce it like that, do you? No, it's Albany in this part of the world. Um, just to make that distinction, it's spelled the same, just pronounce it different. Yeah. Well, tell us about your uh, tour of duty there with uh, my old colleague, Doc Stribling, and some of the things uh, that you were involved with there with the Albany Quail Project. Yeah, I, I was, uh, again, a great stroke of luck. Um, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. About the time I finished up my master's work there at Tall Timbers with the Turkey Project, I actually went to work for them, to, for Tall Timbers, for a little while and in 1990 till about, until August of 1993, and Lee Stribling, a guy named Lee Stribling, Dr. Stribling from Auburn, he was an extension wildlife specialist there, and Dr. Dan Speak, who'd been my major professor at Auburn, started the Albany Quail Project um, in, in Albany, Georgia, which is only about 60, 60 miles or so from, from Tall Timbers, but it's up in southwest Georgia. Um, and at the time, there was, there was a need uh, for that work, for a real practical, management-oriented, hunting-oriented program, uh, and they filled that niche. And it was actually initiated uh, by the Richard King Mellon Family Foundation out of Pittsburgh. They own the property here uh, in, near Albany called Pineland Plantation that the family still has. And they're the ones that initiated that project. It was was going to be a three-year. It actually started in 1992. It was going to be a three-year uh, PhD project um, in 1992, and it's and it's still going today. So that three-year project turned into a to a long-term deal. They expanded it from that initial project in 1993 uh, with the help of a gentleman that you knew, Dale, named Gene Williams, uh, who owned the Pitchfork Ranch out there in your country. Uh, his family, his wife's family, also owned Nilo Plantation here in Albany. Uh, her her daddy was John Olin of Olin Winchester fame. Uh, she was married to Gene Williams, and they're the ones that helped expand the Quail Project from just being a a graduate students project to a big project that involved all the local landowners in the area. And that's when they uh, Dr. Dr. Stribling and Dr. Speak lured me away from my first stand at Tall Timbers to come to work for them. It was actually being run through Auburn University, even though it was in Georgia. Uh, so I came as a director of the Albany Quail Project in, on August 1st of, of 1993. Well, again, striking similarities. You mentioned the Richard King Mellon Foundation, and, and they were the ones that planted the seed financially for us there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. So, again, uh, it's just it's a small world. And, and I, was, I mentioned uh, last month I was talking with Rob Haley, who's a uh, one of our guys out here at Abilene, Texas, and uh, I hope you all enjoyed that podcast. But Rob told me after the interview that he actually had met you at some meeting and knew your, I believe, your grandfather or something like that. So, again, a very small world in the quail world. It is, yeah. Actually, he called me the other day after he had done the interview and reconnected, and uh, he actually went to high school with my, my daddy's first cousin. That was a connection. My uncle, we call him Uncle Joe, but he was my daddy's first cousin. So, and I met him at that uh, at, at Roby, I believe, at that first trip we made out there um, to that uh, distinguished lecture series. But he he called me just last week and and wanted to reconnect with my with my uncle Joe. So it is a small world. Yeah, great guy, and, and I'm just always amazed when things like that. I'm always reminded of Forrest Gump. Was it just serendipity or was it fate? And I tend to think it was fate when you have those kind of encounters. Well, I've had the good fortune of, of having you out quail hunting in West Texas at least twice back in about that 2009 time frame and then in the glory days of uh, 2015 or 16 when you and uh, your good friend Reggie Thaxton were able to make the trip out. So I, I know you've, you've been able to see West Texas in its glory there, and we're going to talk about uh, – 
the hunting situation down there and at Tall Timbers and Dixie Plantation, some of those areas where you've worked, what were some of the key studies and findings when you were involved in that Albany quail project? And, and let me set the, the stage. One of the first that I remember is when you were basically measuring what percentage of the coveys are pointed during a uh, during a hunt course or during a field trial, as the situation may have been. Yeah, that was that was one of the first things that we that we did, Dale, and I actually uh, did mo- a lot of that myself. We started started in '92 and expanded that when I got here in '93. We started going on hunts uh, with these properties, a couple of these properties, uh, and monitoring their encounters with radio tag birds. And that was a great deal of fun and also learned a lot, uh, not just about quail and their behavior, but about, you know, these properties and how they're managed and what they're all about. Because, you know, it's, this is all very traditional horseback hunting with mule-drawn wagons and abrasive, you know, stylish, big running pointers uh, across a beautiful landscape. So it's a real show if you've, if you've never been exposed to it. It's really something to see. And that was my you know, first time really getting involved with it. And I was at one time going with them two or three days a week and did that for, for several years uh, when I was a good bit younger. And, and we were, so we were tracking these hunts off a of horseback, you know, radio tracking these cubbies off a of horseback while they were being hunted. And it, it was really interesting and, and got us a lot of attention early on. Uh, we wrote a bunch of articles, you know, popular and scientific articles about it. Uh, but the local people, especially, and the people, quail hunters all over the country, really uh, seemed to gravitate to that and, and enjoy, you know, hearing about that and seeing what we were finding. And we ended up, uh, during the course of that study, documenting a thousand, over a thousand encounters between hunting parties and radio tag birds during those, you know, five or six hunting seasons. We did that. And we broke it down into all the categories that you would expect uh, but basically what we found was that of the cubbies that you have a reasonable chance of finding that were in the zone that you considered yourself hunting you, you end up seeing about half of them uh, and some of those are wild flushes and some about a third of them are pointed actually pointed and shot a good many wild flushes some of them run from you um, and we, we got to see some interesting escape behaviors and it seemed that some cubbies were better at it than others and and they would hardly ever see some covers they'd see every time, some they hardly ever see, but uh, but learned a lot. And, and then we also talked a lot and documented a lot about uh, what were considered uh, false points. They were called at that time, and uh, it really almost even changed the lingo uh, because they don't hardly call them false points anymore. They call them unproductive. Uh, because what we saw was that most of the time when a dog pointed, these these are and these are good dogs. These are hybrid, well trained, you know, very very selected, the top, the best of the best. And when they point, they're usually pointing quail scent. Now the quail may not still be there, but they're pointing quail scent most of the time. So uh, false point got to be a misnomer, you know. They started calling them unproductive, but we got a lot of mileage out of that. And as, yeah, as you know, there was a lot of you know magazine articles and. We made a lot of presentations at meetings and all that about that. Uh, really didn't have much to do with managing quail, but it was it was extremely interesting. We learned a lot from it. Trey, you were involved in some of the earlier work on radio telemetry, and I, I used 1995 as kind of a timeline to, to call quail. What we know about quail is either in the BT, before telemetry, or AT, after telemetry era. And I know that y'all have seen some uh, – multiple brooding what would you say would be some of the key things that radio telemetry allowed you to document that you didn't already know yeah that's that's a great question dale and uh, i use that terminology all the time now i first heard it from you and i give you credit for it whenever i use it but the bt the whole bt at thing before telemetry and after telemetry is a uh, is really something significant in the history of not just quail, but wildlife research in general. Certainly, it is in quail, and and you know we didn't have we didn't even have transmitters you could put on a quail reliably probably till the late 80s. Uh, really started catching on in the in the early 90s uh, when some of West Burger's early work in Missouri, where you started having big sample sizes of of radio tag birds, and then and then of course in the, in Albany, 
project, and that's always kind of been our our forte. You know, what we're known for is having big samples and and long term studies. That's what we set out to do. Uh, in fact, here on our primary study area at Pineland, um, we first started radio tagging birds in nineteen in March of nineteen ninety two. And we've never been a single day since then without having a sample of radio tag birds. So this was our 30th continuous nesting season uh, of, of monitoring birds on, on one study area. I don't know that that's, that's been done too many places. So, and a lot of things that we learned about, you know, sort of unlock some of the secrets, I guess you'd say, of quail ecology and management. Uh, that hunting stuff being a good example of that, Dale, you know, there's there's no way to have known a lot of the things we saw that were going on during the hunts uh, without having the, the radio tags. There were some unknowns about the reproductive ecology. I think that was probably another one of our milestone findings. Uh, there was not a lot known about brood habitat and where these birds went to raise their young, when, especially when they were real young and secretive and stayed in the cover and hid. Uh, and having these big samples and long-term studies and having a lot of radios out there in the spring and summer allowed us to find out where they were raising, where they were nesting, where they were raising their young. Um, and it brought in this whole concept of, of brood habitat management and reproductive ecology and managing more for raising birds and not just for cover and food. Uh, and, and here in our part of the country, it's uh, what we found was fallow fields or what we call weed fields were critically important. Uh, they, these old crop fields that had been taken out of agriculture um, and they were critically important for raising birds in. They had a lot of insects, had the right structure and all that. And we, you know, never would have been able to document that at the level we did um, without having the radios. Um, you know, we found nesting, you know, nesting ecology, where the birds were nesting, what kind of success they were having, uh, all those sorts of things using the radios. And then just year-round, the year-round demographics, you know, survival. Uh, predation mortality, you know, what was what was killing birds and when and what and what season and all those things. Uh, and then doing that year after year and seeing differences between years and between properties as we continue to expand. It's been extremely enlightening, as you know, and been volumes written on it um, about some of that work, you know, about the demographics and the predation and the whole brood habitat and all those things to us. And it's not just us. There's been plenty of other people. Uh, participated in University of Georgia and Mississippi State and and others that so y'all obviously in Texas and other groups in Texas you know with the whole radio telemetry thing we just there's been a lot learned about quail in the last 25 or 30 years probably at a higher rate than any other time because of, we've just been fortunate that our careers coincided with that technology and and we've been able to take advantage of it. absolutely uh, and and on the academic front Clay. I don't remember. One of the National Quail Symposia, I think the one in Athens, Georgia, and I want to say about 2005, but I could be off. But there was quite a controversy between uh, what Fred Guthrie had called radio handicapping. In other words, if you put a radio on a quail, you've uh, increased its likelihood of, uh, you've decreased its survival, made it more likely it's susceptible to predation. And and you guys, when I say you guys, again, you and uh Dr. Tergune and uh, Shane Willendorf and Bill Palmer and probably others basically came loaded with, for bear about y'all's long-term studies. And that is, uh, I think I'm right in saying that y'all found no uh, evidence of radio handicapping. In other words, you compared that to the long-term band returns. They were similar. Guthrie argued that the survival rates were too low in radio color birds. And our work out here at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation suggests we have some radio handicapping, maybe on the order of 15% increased mortality. Uh, what do you make of that, I guess? I don't want to go too deeply into the weeds on that, but uh, why do you think y'all were not seeing it, but on the Western front, we tended to see it? I, I think, well, that's a, that's a great summary, Dale, and that was, uh, I, I remember those days uh, fondly, and we were able to document and publish in the journals, you know, about our work, looking at, just as you mentioned, the you know, radio tag bird estimates we were getting from radio tag birds versus uh, just banded birds, you know, that obviously weren't carrying a radio. And we had almost exactly the same survival estimates 
uh, between the two groups. I think part of where that whole concept came from, we, I was told that for years early on during this work. Uh, in fact, Walter Rosine told me that one time that uh, I knew him late in his career that uh, that he that you know he was suspicious of any um, you know studies or results about of, from from not just quail but any species of radios on them because he was worried that it may handicap their change their behavior or modify their survival or whatever. We were able to demonstrate here that it doesn't. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't doubt that that in some places there may be a minor effect, but it's, it's like you suggested, minor, um, and not enough to not keep you from doing it. I would, uh, if there is truly a difference, Dale, my speculation would be that you, your birds live in a lot harsher environment than ours do, um, and in these properties that we work on here in the deep south, these intensively managed quail plantations, these birds are. Are pampered, you know. They they get they're given every opportunity to survive, uh, every legal means possible to you know to keep the predators away from them and keep them fed and great cover and all that low hunting pressure. Uh, so they're you know they're they're living they're living a pretty comfortable life here compared to the rolling plains of Texas. Okay, that is a great point. I, I appreciate that. Clay, help us again. I'm assuming most of our listeners are in the Texas scene and may or may not have been down to the panhandle of florida and southwestern georgia so kind of paint the landscape uh first of all how much rainfall do y'all receive in an average year 40 50 <laughs> inches yeah i figured you'd ask me that uh because of the discrepancy we're at, we're at 53 here Dale, and uh and tall t- we're we're 100 miles from the gulf of mexico uh in the southwestern corner of of georgia and we're about we're about 50 miles from the Florida line and about 50 miles from the Alabama line. So we're right down in the southwestern corner of Georgia, about 100 miles from the coast. Uh, we get plenty of rain. Um, a lot of that, a lot of that 53 inches is in the summer. Uh, we get thunder showers that come off the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, for instance, this year, we, this year was a was a very good growing season for us. Uh, in the month of July, in the 31 days of July, we had rain 18 days out of 31. Uh, that's an unusual amount, but our but July is a wet month, and we usually get six and a half or seven inches of rain just in July. Um, so we're we're not hurting for rain. It's it's a coastal plain, piney woods, uh, pretty flat country. There's variation in the soils. Um, pretty well drained and fertile. It's also a big ag area. Um, this part of Georgia, if you look, if you have an interest, look at. Uh, you know, look at Albany or Camilla or Colquitt, any of these. Just look at the counties in southwest Georgia, and uh, and you'll see what I mean. If you get out, you get outside these managed quail plantations, and you've been here, Dale. You know what it looks like. It's intensive agriculture. It's center pivot, irrigated agriculture. Uh, it looks like somebody took a cookie cutter and uh, and punched holes in the, in the aerial photograph for miles in every direction. Um, and these properties are, you know, of those same soil types. They just happened to be bought up back in the in the 30s and 40s before all that came along, and they never let that happen to them. If it if it hadn't been for these plantations and these these uh, the owners having these properties bought up, they'd, it'd be cotton fields or, or pecan groves if right right now or, uh, instead of what it is. So it's but it's it's pretty fertile, uh, sandy but relatively fertile, well drained, plenty of water. Um, and mostly piney woods in this part of the, in this part of Georgia. Let me talk about your stakeholder community because I sense, and in my limited time, uh, one or two trips down there, that it takes a village to raise a, a kid. They say these days, and it takes y'all, y'all have a village. Y'all have a, a lot of property with similar landowner goals. That's what I interpret. If that's the case. How do you see that that's a real benefit to those individuals who are growing quail within that chastity belt, if you will? Yeah, that's that's a great point, Dale, and we talk about it all the time. Um, and it's a I can't I, I can't overstate the advantage of really having that. What what is a landscape of intensively managed quail habitat instead of you know, postage stamps scattered all over. Um, and we work with we work with a variety of properties. You know, we're fortunate here in the Albany area and in the Thomasville, Tallahassee area, which is only 50 miles away where Tall Timbers is located. Um, you know, there's between the two places, there's about 700,000 acres. 
of these type properties. There's 400,000 in Thomasville, 300,000 here, and then a scattering of properties all around, you know, across Georgia. We work into the Carolinas, over into Alabama. Um, and and our experience is that the intensity level of management, um, when you get away from this landscape, when you get to one of those islands or one of those isolated properties, it takes, uh, even under the same intensity level of management, you can't ha- have as high a bird density. Uh, it can be, still be good, but not, not as good as if you're right here in what we what we call the core of this landscape. It's a, it's a huge advantage to be uh, in a situation where you have neighbors that are doing the same thing that you're doing. Um, you know, it keeps a, everybody's keeping the predator numbers down. You don't have an influx of them from your neighbors. So habitat's good everywhere, low harvest. You know, for every bird that leaves your property in the spring dispersal, there's probably one coming on from the neighbor. Uh, and there's just not a lot of places, at least in the deep south. I know in, as places in the west and Texas, especially where you got these big landscapes still. But uh, it's certainly unique for the deep south where we are uh, to have this big area that's under, the, you know, an intensive, this intensive of management. And it's a huge advantage to be in this landscape. Why pick it up to where uh, when you left the Albany Quail Project and joined the staff and faculty over at Tall Timbers? In, in January of, of 2008, uh, we made a decision collectively as a group with our constituents here. Um, it, it, and it was really brought on by Dr. Stribling. Dr. Speak had already retired from Auburn. Uh, we ran the project very successfully through with him and Lee Stribling for 15 years as part of Auburn. Um, Dr. Stribling was getting ready to retire. Um, and it just, at that point, seemed to make more sense uh, to align ourselves with a, with a nonprofit that was, you know, in uh, in the same business that we were and focused on quail. And um, in the, during that time period, uh, the, the latter years of when it was with Auburn still, a very, uh, a very good event, um, landmark event happened at Tall Timbers when Dr. Bill Palmer came and became their game bird director. Uh, he and I had known one another a little bit, got to know each other really well, became colleagues um, and became close friends. And now he's he's actually, he's my boss. He's the president, CEO at Tall Timbers now. But at the time he was a game bird director. So working with him, uh, we decided to make the move in January 2008 to become a part of a, a field office, I guess you'd say, or become the first sort of satellite office of Tall Timbers. Uh, we still we still call ourselves the Albany Quail Project, uh, but we're basically uh, represent Tall Timbers' interest uh, to the Albany, Georgia area, and also uh, our area of coverage is is uh, goes into Alabama. The properties we work with in Alabama. And again, kudos to to Dr. Palmer and and all the faculty there at Tall Timbers and. Tall Timbers Research Station is is a common phrase for those of us in, in Texas because again, uh, we've studied, we've been watching, we're like flies on the wall, and we've been studying everything y'all have been doing. And I remember when you and Bill came out to Roby for that distinguished lectureship, and again, y'all wowed the crowd as far as your presentation did an outstanding job of laying out all the work that you're doing. But basically, y'all have a three-pronged approach, as I interpret it. Maybe four if, if I say habitat, but habitat is largely for burning. So I'm saying fire, predation management, and supplemental feeding. Is that a pretty accurate synopsis? It is, Dale. And, uh, you know, that uh, that three-legged stool, if you want to call it that, that, that terminology actually came from uh, – from one of our colleagues who I know you've met and, and studied was Dick Potts over in the UK, uh, dealing with with uh, red grouse and and gray partridge. They were the first ones to sort of talk about that that three legged stool of habitat, predation management, and feeding. And I would add a fourth. Uh, it may be not as as strong a leg, but certainly a fourth part of it is a conservative harvest. Uh, we preach that too. So that, uh, but habitat obviously is always first, and we. Um, we get criticized sometimes for, you know, talking about the, the predator management and the supplemental feeding and all that. And people get the misconception that we promote that instead of or, or over good habitat management. But that couldn't be further from the case. And we recognize 
and uh, and and know and recommend and preach the you know the first step is always always having adequate habitat and and obviously in this part of the world uh, this is a fire maintained ecosystem a uh, fire maintained pine forest you know that's one of the things that tall timbers was founded on it was been around since 1958 uh, founded by Herbert Stoddard and the Comerics and a guy named Henry Beetle left his property uh, was really to study fire ecology and, and its effects, prescribed burning effects on wildlife, primarily quail. So that's our number one tool uh, is keeping the overstory in the right condition and then burning the understory at the right rate and time and frequency and all that sort of thing. As, as you can imagine, Dale, you've seen this country multiple times. So, uh, you know, when you're getting 55 or 60 inches of rain, tall timbers is you know, is in a 56 or 57 inch rainfall zone, and they're just 50 miles south of us being closer to the coast. So you got places that are getting, you know, even closer to the coast, 60 inches a year on relatively fertile land that vegetation grows a lot. Um, and it doesn't take but three years for it to grow completely out of quail habitat in this part of the world. So we have to burn, we uh, routinely burn, all these properties routinely burn half of the understory every year in a very thought out fashion where it's evenly distributed not in big blocks and all that and all that's done in the spring immediately after hunting season but prior to the nesting season so that's our the number one thing of the number one leg of that of that stool is is habitat and certainly that's the case here or any or anywhere you go yeah habitat's always your first line of defense if we're talking about predation management you you got to have try to tilt those odds towards the quail and away, away from their respective enemies but, uh, Clay, one of the things that y'all impressed me with, and again, anybody that's followed the tall timber story down there, is the intensity of management. Whether we're talking prescribed burning, whether we're talking predation management, or whether we're talking supplemental feed, I don't know anybody really in Texas that practices those kind of things to the intensity that y'all do. So let's just, uh, let's just say that I had a property there in, uh, in the Albany area. And I decided, well, I'm going to cut back on my expenses this year, and I'm going to cut something out, and I'll just pick the supplemental feeding. So if I did away with the supplemental feeding, I mean, typically your sandy soils are not food limited. So I guess how important or what relative ranking would you put on those habitat, predation management, and supplemental feeding? Are they all co-equal, or are some of them more important than others? Aside from the habitat, we've all... We all agree that's number one. Yeah, certainly that's number one. And we've, we've got a lot of research uh, on all of those topics. Dale, as you know, we've done, we did some of the original um, research on supplemental feed and going back as far as 1993. And it's and it was controversial even then. Um, and I remember coming out of school, and I, you know, I went to two different land grant universities and got wildlife degrees. And I, I was told all the, all the current theories and all that. And, and, you know, so I came out of school believing that anything sort of, it was considered unnatural uh, and supplemental feeding certainly would have been in that category or predator management uh, was somehow wrong or ineffective. And, but there wasn't a lot of really good research done on it, but we, we set out and, and what some of those initial feeding studies to, to disprove the fact that, feeding was necessary or to demonstrate to these property owners and managers in this area that that feeding was not necessary uh, to maintain a high quail population. So we got one of the, I've told this story a thousand times, we got one of the local land, actually it was Gene Williams, whose whose family owns a pitchfork out there here at Nilo Plantation in Albany, and we got them to quit feeding on part of their property. And they'd been doing it for years. It wasn't anything new. They'd been supplemental feeding birds for, for years. Um, we we got them to discontinue the feeding program on a portion of their property, and we had radio tag birds there, and we're monitoring it versus where they continue to feed and the population density and all the demographics and all that sort of thing. Uh, to make a long story short, the, popul- that, the area that was not being fed uh, declined by 60% in two years from what had been a pretty high quail population where the other area did not and that study was supposed to be multi-year crossover and all that sort of thing but uh, Mr. Williams uh, invited us on a me and Dr. Stribling on a hunt one day and 
And uh, while we were riding, he said that he, he told us that he knew all he needed to know about not feeding his quail. And that study was officially over. And that, that was a real eye-opener to us. Um, and it demonstrated to us that, you know, maybe there was something to it. After all, we sort of switched gears in and started looking at not whether you should feed, but how the best way to go about it. And we've done lots and lots of studies since then. And what we found was even in an environment like we have, where you've got a great climate, good habitat, and all that, that you can increase your population above and beyond just what the habitat can do uh, with with year-round. And this is year-round intensive supplemental feeding. This is not a token effort. Uh, this is pretty intensive. Um, and it, uh, it what it does is it elevates the good years, but it also decreases the decline in the low years, and that's an important point uh, to remember. So we're not just trying to elevate the highs. We're also trying to elevate the lows so that when you do drop off for whatever reason, you're able to recover quicker. And and that may be, you know, may have some relevance in y'all's country, even, Dale, certainly in areas that have a harsher climate and the more northern fringes of the range. You know, we're deep within the heart of original quail range here and we don't deal with those weather extremes that you get on especially on the northern and western fringe but but even here where you would you would think it wouldn't be as big a deal it, it can be uh and can make a can make a big difference and but again I'll, I'll stress the fact that it's not a token effort it's not just a few feeders out there you know where bird can get a little feed i mean these we, we've measured a bunch of these properties we know what it is we do it on our own properties that we we own too Tall Timber does owns two properties ourselves. Um, and you're, you're talking about a mile and a half or two miles per hundred acres of continuously spread feed trails. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of feed, uh, if you think about it. A mile and a half of continuously spread feed on, a, on every hundred acres. So it's not, it's not a token effort. It's a very intensive effort. Same with, with the predator management uh, we've done a lot of research on that we were criticized for it uh early on about about even taking it on as a as a research topic it's a very emotional uh thing obviously but uh, but we did a whole series of studies looking at at predation management or predator removal and there's there's a there's a good uh distinction there you know we're not talking about just predator control or predator removal there's more to predation management than just removing predators you know predation management means you're you're trying to manage habitat in favor of the quail and but also in disfavor to the quail's natural enemies which are a lot you know we, we're blessed in this part of the world to have a lot of wildlife including a lot of predators lots of hawks and owls both resident year-round and migratory lots of snakes and lots of mammal predators so what we try to do here is manage the manage the habitat to favor quail, but also disfavor some of their natural enemies. And then by feeding them in that good cover, they don't have to move as much, so they're not exposing themselves to predation. So it all works together, if you see what I'm saying. All those things work together to, inc- to improve your demographics, your annual survival and reproductive output to where you can maintain a high density, have maximum reproductive output. But also, if you have some adverse weather, which we don't have very often, or for some other reason, the population drops. It doesn't drop far enough to where you can't recover in one year. I just want to, to supplement, no pun intended, supplement the discussion of supplemental <laughs> feeding. That one of the reasons biologically y'all think that that's working for you or helping is because you've increased your rat population. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, it, it increases everything. You know, it increases um, rats and mice and rabbits and all those prey items uh, and, and maintains a more stable circumstance for them, as, as does the, the predator removal helps those that other prey base. And then when you do have migratory raptors coming through or even the resident birds, you know, they're not putting as much pressure on the quail because there's lots of other things for them to eat. So it elevates that whole prey base. Um, and then the fourth thing you would add to that, uh, I mentioned earlier, if there was a fourth leg to that stool or table would be a conservative harvest. Um, and that's the real mentality of these properties. You know, the, the quail hunting is is very uh, very formal. There's a lot. You know, see a lot of birds. It's horseback and the beautiful scenery and all that. But it's um, it's not really about the kill. Although that's obviously what they're there for is to try to kill quail. But they're very conservative. 
with the hunting pressure and the harvest to the tune of most of these properties, the harvest is 10% or less of the fall population, which is very conservative harvest, but that helps to ensure a big carryover through the winter so that you have maximum breed numbers the following spring. And so 10% of the harvest, and what kind of population estimates? Is that based on fall cutty call counts? Is that what that's based on, Clay? It is, Dale. We do, uh, just like y'all do, as you know, we do we do a big census. We're going to start Monday. Uh, we do covey census on a, on a bunch of places. Uh, we'll, do it, we'll be at it for a month or, or more. Uh, and yeah, that harvest estimates based on on the fall a fall density estimate derived from from cubby counts. And we're you know we've had uh, we've been on a pretty good roll here in, in in this part of the country for on these intensively managed places. So um, we've had good growing seasons. The last drought, and y- y'all probably wouldn't even consider it a drought. I think we had 36 inches of rain instead of 53 um that year but most of that was through the summer um but uh that was in 2014 which impacted the population significantly um you know this this country gets a lot of rain but it also needs a lot of rain you know what i mean because of vegetation uh it it needs a lot of rain and it'll suffer pretty quick you'd be surprised in a couple of weeks without it in the summertime so we've been on a pretty good roll have good populations good hunting you know you're looking at at bird densities between one and a half and three birds to the acre on most of these properties. I'd say, you know, so average an average density across a lot of these managed properties is in that would be in the two bird per acre range. That's incredible. And for those of us here in Texas, again, one quail per acre is a is a great goal. Two thousand sixteen, uh, we figured we had a few two birds per acre at the research ranch and uh, that was that was incredible. So uh, I know y'all have been able to, again, not only achieve those results, but to sustain them, at least much more so than what we can do here on the Western Front. Let's uh, let's move into a new chapter called the Dixie Plantation. Clay, I know that's <laughs> something that's been added to your star, so tell me a little bit about Dixie Plantation. Yeah, Dixie was given to uh, the tall timbers um, back in, in December of, of 2013, uh, we actually renamed the property recently to, to honor the family that gave it to us. It was a Livingston family, um, so now it's it's called Livingston Place um, to honor them. But uh, it's 9,000 acres. It's um, in the Red Hills. It's 80 miles from where I'm sitting in my office here and in, in near Albany. Uh, but it's in the southeastern corner of that Red Hills region. Um, long history. It's been a quail plantation going back to the the 40, 30s uh, and been a field trial there, the Continental Field Trial, which uh, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, which is a big uh, all-age champ- open championship that's run every year in January. It's been held there for 85 years. Um, so it's a historic place. It's got a, uh, a lot of history there. It's a whole place is in a conservation easement, but it was given to Tall Timbers um, to be, uh, you know, operate. We continue to operate it very much so as a working property. And we do some quail research and other types of research there on a working environment where the tall timber, the original tall timbers property, which is 4,000 acres near Tallahassee, is more of a research site. Uh, the Livingston property is, is very much a working property. We still grow in timber and farming, uh, have a field trial. We, do, we have wild quail hunts there, uh, 30 days a year of, of hunting. So it's a uh, it's very much a working property, just like all the neighboring properties. And we, we've learned a lot uh, from that experience. Um, and I think probably the, one of the biggest things we've learned is that we see things, we're able to see things now more from the perspective of a landowner. And Dale, you can relate to this uh, with the Rolling Plains Ranch and now having, you know, y'all had the responsibility of owning and operating that. It's, uh, it's one thing to tell other people how to, how to spend their money and what to do on their place, but you get a little different perspective of things when you start having to do it on your own place. Um, and that's been that's been a great thing for our organization would be to have to, you know, practice what we preach and to, and to get that perspective of actually owning a property, a working property like that, and and having a better appreciation for what it takes uh, to have to operate. As my former president Rick Snaps is fond of saying, it's always different when you have skin in the game. And uh, obviously, y'all do. Clay, real quickly, there's one key tool down there that, that 
basically dominates the rangelands here in Texas, but y'all don't ever talk about it, and that's cattle grazing. Is are cattle taboo for whatever reason down there? Yeah, they are. They are. Uh, you know, and it used to be, uh, you know, back in the day, probably a hundred years ago or so, there was a lot of cattle grazing in the woods, uh, even in this part of the, of the country, and certainly down into the peninsula part of Florida, uh, where there still is. But uh, yeah, there's no, there's no cattle grazing um, on any of these managed properties here on the in the quail woods in in the piney woods that are being managed for quail they saw that have some cattle but they're you know they're um kept in on pasture improved pasture uh, but yes yeah, it's, it's that's that's maybe the biggest difference between here and the western range is that we have no no cattle grazing on these quail properties it's all thought of as being in this part of the world it's all mostly on improved pasture and clay i know uh between you and Bill, and there might have been other authors, but y'all published a book five, six, seven years ago, and I, I'm sorry, I looked for my copy and I couldn't find it before the podcast. Tell us what the title of that book is and, and how uh, listeners might be able to get a hold of that if they still can get a hold of it. Yeah, they can, Dale. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's called the Tall Timbers Bob White Quail Management Handbook, um, and it was an update. of uh, There was one done back in, I believe it was 1990 two or three um, by Brad Mueller and Larry Landers. I met Jimmy Atkinson might have had a part in that. Uh, and this was, so this was uh, 30 years later almost. It was done in 2017, myself and Bill Palmer are the editors, but there's there's a number of other authors. Uh, some of the names you've already mentioned, Shane Wellendorf and Theron Terhune and Reggie Thaxton, uh, Greg Hagen, Eric Stoller, or some of the other authors but it's basically a compilation of all the stuff we've been talking about today and all the work done at the main office at tall timbers uh, over this past 30 years just a summary of all this uh at you know after telemetry findings that we've that we've been able to do over 30 years and it boils it all down into one place and in uh, uh you know common sense uh layman's terms it's not a it's not sciencey or fancy uh, we just tried to boil it down into a real readable format, and we—it's uh, been well received. We we printed a thousand of them in 2017 when it first came out. Those quickly sold out. Printed another thousand, and they're gone. So we're on our third printing of uh, a thousand, and uh, and it can be—you can go on Tall Timbers website, talltimbers.org, and order it off the website. That's the only place I know of that you can order it online. I don't think it's carried anywhere else. Okay, uh, kind of bringing this to closure, Clay. Uh, again, congratulations. I always tell people out here on the Western Front that you guys have cracked the code um, with, your, with your habitat, predation management, supplemental feeding. You all know how to turn the tumblers on the lock and make it work. And again, carrying two birds per acre or something like that, we're jealous, we're envious of you down there. And hopefully uh, someday we'll be able to replicate y'all's success here on the Western Front. A couple of last questions. Are there any new frontiers in quail science or quail management? Well, Dale, I'm sure there are. You know, we, as we talked about earlier, we've been very fortunate to be, uh, our careers have spanned a time where we had this, you know, improved technology, especially with radio telemetry, but also with video cameras and other things that, that have helped to advance the knowledge I'm sure there's other stuff out there that's coming that maybe we don't even know about technology that'll that'll help unlock even some more of the mysteries. I think there's still a lot to learn about chick survival uh, and brood habitat. Uh, they're such a small bird when they're born, it's hard to you know monitor their survival and predation rates and all that. So I think there's still a lot to learn about that. Um, we're still, you know, doing a lot of work with translocation. We didn't talk about that much, but we're, you know, very active and have been for a number of years and, and redeveloping and restocking areas here in the deep south uh, and had some luck here, at least in this part of the country, with with creating or reestablishing populations that have, that have gone, that have been eliminated. Um, but I think there's a couple of points I'd like to make and, you know, in closing, one the thing that worries me the most um, going forward is really the, I guess you'd call it the urbanization of our society. 
Um, and it was really, I, I lay awake at night worrying about it. And it was really brought to the forefront a number of years ago when we, we went, a group of us from Tall Timbers went to the UK and went to the Game Conservancy. Uh, and, and there are sort of the uh, colleagues and equivalent of what Tall Timbers is, a nonprofit property that, you know, that works for private property and, and such as Rolling Plains also in the UK with red grouse and gray partridge and all that. And they have a lot of issues over there. Uh, because their society is even more urbanized than ours with anti-hunting sentiment, um, you know, out, people outspoken against predation management, feeding, those sorts of things. So, you know, some of those issues worry me that we know, not necessarily learning whether they work or not, but being able to continue to do them uh, in the society that we're, that we're living in and as it, as it moves forward. I think because of that, we've got to do a better job of, explaining what it why it is we do some of the things we do and also the benefits that some of this management has to other species uh certainly on these properties that we work with all of this stuff we're talking about the habitat the feeding the predation management has huge benefits to a lot of wildlife not just game animals uh but a lot of other species some of which are endangered species or threatened like red cockaded woodpeckers and gopher tortoises and and different kinds of perps, you know, that, that benefit from these private properties doing this intensive, intensive management. And I think we need to do a better job of, of pointing that out. We've done a good job in this area of pointing out the economic benefit. We've done some publications and in-depth studies looking at the economic benefit of these properties, and it's significant, about $300 million of annual economic impact and a couple of thousand jobs, which is a big deal in a rural area. As you know, so uh, I think those are those are some of the things that uh, that we really need to be focused on going forward. And I always try to keep in the back of my mind, Dave, when I was a young biologist, uh, graduate student, even, and I first went to Tall Timbers. Those guys, I, there were still some guys around there that had been involved with Tall Timber studies, and even back in Stoddard's day, and and uh, and some of those early projects where they had a lot of quail in the 60s and 70s without having to do some of the things that we do now, without having to do feeding and predation management. They had documented population at Tall Timbers in 1972 with three birds to the acre without doing any of that, just burning and habitat management. And they thought, one of those guys told me one time in 1972, we thought we knew everything there was to know about managing for quail. And five years later, we had a third of that. We were at birds of the acre, and we still don't know what, what happened. So I try to keep that in the back of my mind. And, you know, we've been on a good roll here, and we've had a lot of success. Uh, but I, we, we, we try not to let our guard down because, you know, at some point we could find ourselves in that, in that same situation. And I, I, I still remember that from early in my career. So I try to keep that in mind all the time. Well, I've made the statement not – not on my watch. We're not going to watch what's happened across the southeast happen in West Texas. But I've had to almost eat crow the last couple of years, too. It has been tough, tough sledding here for the last three or four years. But people like you and, and the uh, information that y'all are generating down there gives me new hope and uh, restores my hope. Next, one last question, Clay. What's the next chapter for Clay Sisson? Oh, uh, I don't know. I've been getting asked that a lot. Lately, I guess the grayer my beard gets, the more the more I get asked that. So I'm still enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, I won't be 60 until my next birthday, uh, so I've still got a few years left. Uh, as long as I can be productive and relevant, I, I want to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, but also, you know, hope one day to have some grandkids to fool with. And and uh, I got I got five bird dogs that that want my attention and I'd like to be walking behind them more. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot, a lot still ahead. Uh, next time when that, the next quail eruption you have in the rolling plains, I hope to be coming to visit you. I hope you are too. And, uh, I think again, a lot of similarities between me and you, even though we're 1500 miles or more apart. And one of them is what I call Susie's, uh, 10 point plan for success. And point number 10 was, be thankful that your vocation and your application are one and the same. And that's something that you and I share, and we share that with our bird dogs. So, Clay, it's been great to visit with you here today. I do look forward to getting you back out here, and I look forward to seeing Dixie Plantation someday. But I appreciate all the, the sound advice that you've been able to give our listeners. 
And with that, Gary, I'm going to turn it back to you, and we'll look forward to visiting with you all again next month. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dale. Really enjoyed your visit with Clay Sisson today. Very helpful information and great insights. If you've enjoyed this edition of Dr. Dale on Quail, I encourage you to go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org for additional episodes of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.